0: to love that makes me see On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. So Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word and our time together in it. You may be seated. We began looking at this passage last Sunday morning, and my intention was to do this in one message, but if you were here, you know that we, we were not able to get through it all last week, and so we're going to finish it up this morning, Lord willing. And to maintain our flow of thought from last week, we need a few minutes to review what we said last time. So if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that I began by posing a question, and it's a very important question. In fact, it's one of the most important questions in all of life because the implications are eternal. And the question was this, why do men need to be saved? Why do men need to be saved? And as I said, I'm afraid that today a great many professed Christians would answer that question this way. Well, men need to be saved so their sins may be forgiven, so that they might uh, enjoy a happy life and spend eternity in heaven. But again, those are among the benefits of salvation. But that doesn't answer the question as to why men need to be saved. And this is what is so often missing from gospel presentations today. I mean, so many gospel presentations begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, not if you're an unbeliever. He doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life. Because if you die in your sin, this is the best it's going to get for you. Your troubles will have just begun. Why 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 do men need to be saved? I mean, that's the question the Apostle Paul answers for us in this passage. But let me give you the short answer to the question. It's this, men need to be saved because all men are under sin. They are enslaved to sin, and they stand condemned before the holy God of heaven, deserving of nothing but judgment and condemnation. And if a man or woman dies in that state, if they die in their sin apart from Christ, they will spend eternity in hell where they will experience the eternal wrath of God. And so what we're dealing with here is of immense importance. Nothing could be more important. And so once again, I want to encourage all of you to give your full attention to the teaching of God's Word. And we have to remember the context in which Paul wrote these words. In verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, Paul introduced the theme of the book of Romans, which is the Gospel, in verses 16 and 17. And basically, the rest of the book of Romans is an exposition of the gospel. And Paul is committed to presenting the gospel in Romans, but before he can ever talk about how we can be saved, he must begin with the statement of sin and judgment. Because we must first, he must first convince us of our own lost condition before we will ever see our need for a Savior. I mean, it would be absolutely pointless to talk about getting right with God until we realize that we are not right with God. The biblical order in any gospel presentation is always first the bad news of guilt and then the good news of grace. So before he ever gets to the remedy, he must present the disease. And so like a prosecuting attorney in a court of law, Paul, from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, proves that all men are sinners, guilty before God, and therefore deserving of His wrath and judgment. And he began by making his case against all mankind by first dealing with pagans. In other words, people who are immoral, they're irreligious. Uh, people who have never entered a church uh, probably in their entire life. But then, secondly, in chapter two, verses one to sixteen, he dealt with self-righteous people, religious people, moralists, people who are, uh, you know, outwardly moral, religious, but lost. And then, in chapter two, verses seventeen to twenty-nine, he zeroed in specifically on the Jews, God's covenant people. And following that, in chapter three, verses one to eight, he refuted the objections that he knew the Jews were going to have. His arguments, And so, at this point, when we get to uh, verse 9 of chapter 3, at this point, all the arguments have now been silenced by Paul. In proving his case, Paul has included absolutely everyone. No one has escaped. He's brought all men before the court of God's justice, so to speak. And he has presented overwhelming evidence that our, of our guilt before God. And so, like a masterful, skilled prosecutor, Paul has absolutely destroyed all of man's false securities, all of man's convenient hiding places, all of our excuses and arguments. He has ripped off the covers, so to speak, and left us all standing naked and condemned before the bar of God's justice. And then in our text, verses 9 to 20, we have Paul's final summary. So this is Paul at the peak of his argument summarizing everything he has said from chapter 1, verse 18 up to this point so that he may leave the entire world standing before the judgment bar of God trembling and silent. And so the picture here is that of a trial. The procedure is judicial. The language is that of a trial. And Paul will present now the charge, the indictment, and then the verdict. Last week, we looked at verse 9 in which Paul presented the charge, Uh, and so let's look at that again very quickly. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul is summing up uh, all that he has said about the pagan, the moralist, and the Jew. He's condemned all of them, and so he says, what then? In other words, what is the conclusion to all of this? Are we Jews any, any better off? And when it comes to, the, to needing salvation, Paul answers, no, not at all. The reason, the rest of verse 9, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. By nature, the Jewish person is no more right with God than the pagan or the moralist. All, Paul says, are under sin. I mean, by nature, all human beings, every single person bar none, All men are imprisoned under sin's power and are unable to free themselves by anything that they can do. And only Jesus Christ, proclaimed in the gospel, can break through the walls of sin that imprison people. So that's the charge. Paul has brought the entire human race to the judgment bar, and, and all are charged with being under the power of sin, and they stand guilty and condemned before God. And Paul's statement in verse 9, along with what we see now in verses 10-18 to is the most explicit description of the total depravity of mankind in all of Scripture. And because of the confusion surrounding what exactly total depravity means, I want to define it again as I did last week. Total depravity means this, that sin affects every aspect of our human existence. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are all affected by sin, all corrupted by sin. Every dimension of our personality suffers at some point from the weight of sin that has infected the entire human race ever since the fall of man. Total depravity does not mean, it does not mean that every human being is as wicked as it is possible to be. I mean, that idea is ridiculous and untrue, and it's contradicted by what we see every day around us. Because all human beings are not drunks, felons, adulterers, murderers, etc. I mean, there are differences in the degree to which people sin. I mean, a person can always sin more often and more seriously than they presently do. Total depravity refers to the extent of our sinful corruption not to its degree. And so on the smallest of terms, or the simplest of terms, total depravity means that every area of human life has been tainted and corrupted by sin. And it was J.I. Packer who said, On the one hand, no one is as bad as he or she might be, while on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. And after the charge in verse 9, now in verses 10 to 18, Paul presents a 14-count indictment against fallen mankind. So this is God's view of the unsaved. This is God's indictment of unsaved man. Paul begins by saying in verse 10, as it is written, and we know from last week that Paul's use of this phrase tells us that he is getting this indictment from the Scriptures. This is not something that he came up with on his own, just made up, not at all. From verses 10 to 18, we have a series of Old Testament quotes that that tell us the truth about man. And here is God's verdict upon all men and women, including every one of us. This 14-part indictment divides into three areas, man's character, his speech, and his conduct. And we start with man's character because that essentially is the problem. Man is rotten at the core. The Bible indicates to us that man's heart is corrupt, his inner being is sinful and filthy, and so out of his character comes what he says and what he does. Count number one. And we got through the first four counts last week, but I'm going to touch them again just briefly this morning. So count number one. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous. Is righteous, And because somebody would always say, well, except for me, Paul adds, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no, not one. There is none righteous. None righteous. No, not one, God says. You see, God's standard of righteousness for men is absolute sinless perfection. In other words, the perfect righteousness he himself possesses, which was manifested in Jesus Christ. In other words, a person who is not as as sinless and perfect as God in every single way is not acceptable to God. And none of us, no one comes even remotely close to that standard. And so by God's standard, which is the only standard that counts, There are none righteous, no, not one. All are under sin, just as Paul charged in verse 9. Count number two, no one understands. No one understands. People are not only universally evil, but also spiritually ignorant. You see, man's lack of righteousness affects his understanding, He has no innate spiritual capacity to know and understand God. Why? His mind is infected by sin and unrighteousness. He is utterly insensitive. He has no perception of God's truth. His mind is darkened, Paul said in Ephesians. Man is hopelessly blinded to the truth about God, but he doesn't know that because he is spiritually dead. There are none righteous, not even one." No one understands. Count number three, no one seeks for God. That is, no one by nature wants to know God. No one seeks Him on their own initiative. They can't. They're spiritually dead. Their minds are darkened, blinded to the truth. They are at enmity with God. Paul said in Romans 1.30, they are haters of God. Romans 5, he speaks of us as being enemies of God. Men do not seek God. They seek their own will and their own way. That's the way they want to go. And the whole of Scripture from the Garden of Eden to the conclusion of the book of Revelation describes the great God who is searching for and seeking to save that which is lost. Jesus Himself said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God said to the prophet Ezekiel, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I Myself, will search for My sheep and seek them out. God is pursuing us while we are the fugitives fleeing from Him, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. And the only person who truly seeks God is the person who has responded positively because the Holy Spirit has been working in their hearts, seeking that person, drawing them, wooing them to Christ. I mean, that is an authentic seeking. And then count number four, all have turned aside. You know They have all turned aside. In other words, they're all running in the wrong direction. Man has, has deserted the way of God. And that's what the prophet Isaiah said. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to God's way? No, we have turned everyone to his own way. The natural man does not follow the straight and narrow path that leads to God. He, he tries to flee from the very presence of God. He follows his own way of living under the delusion that he, he is okay, but he's not... And as Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Death. So man is not righteous. He has no spiritual understanding. He does not see God of his own initiative. He has gone his own way. And that brings us now to the fifth count in the indictment where we left off last week. Look at verse 12. Here's count number five of God's indictment against humanity. Together, They have become worthless. Together, that is all of mankind, all human beings have become worthless. This word worthless is the basic thought of useless because it has deteriorated. It's, It's so corrupted that it has lost its significant use. And the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word translated here worthless was often used for milk that had turned sour and was rancid so that it was worthless to drink or for any other use. And Paul says that the human race is worthless. It is worthless in the sense that it is corrupted and is unfit for God's intended purpose. And what is God's intended purpose for man? I shared it a little uh, earlier in the announcement. God's intended purpose for man is to know Him, to have a relationship with Him, to love Him, to serve Him, and to glorify Him forever. But unsaved man is spiritually dead, corrupted, and therefore worthless and unfit for God's intended purpose. Unsaved people, they're spiritually dead branches totally unable to produce any spiritual fruit, and as such, they are lifeless and worthless, fit only to be thrown into the fire and burned. That's what Jesus said about the dead branches. Writing to Titus, the Apostle Paul emphasized the same tragic reality when it comes to the utter worthlessness of those who are merely religious. He said to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, Yeah, these religious people, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They deny Him by the way they live. They're there on Sunday, yucking it up. But Monday through Saturday, they're living for themselves. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. God says the natural man is useless. He is worthless as far as the divine purposes of God are concerned. And like the worthless dead branch is destined for the fires of hell. Count number six, verse 12. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. This is very similar to the first count and and really is somewhat of a summary of the first five. Verse 10 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. Now, verse 12 says, No one does good, not even one. And that essentially says the same thing, but I think takes it a step further. You know, no one, not a single person, does good. And good here refers to what is upright, specifically to what is morally upright. And measured by God's perfect standard of righteousness, again, which is the only standard that counts, The natural man has no ability to to do anything upright and good. Nothing that would ever make him right and acceptable to God. And we're not saying that man does not do some human good. Because the natural man, the unsaved man, certainly does things that are good and, and kind by human standards. In fact, I have known, sadly, unbelievers who are more kind and do more good things and are more giving and generous than a lot of believers I know. So the unsaved man certainly does things that are good and kind by human standard. But all the good that a man could do, all of a man's good works, will never in all eternity make him right or acceptable to God. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah that all our righteousnesses, that's what the ESV says, another translation says, that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or like filthy rag. So you want to take all the good things you've ever done, all your good deeds, all your good works, and present those before God. Let me tell you what he's going to say. He says, that is, God will say, that to me is offensive because to me that is nothing more than a pile of filthy, stinking rags. Unsaved man does not have the desire nor the capacity for the good that is holy, perfect, and God-glorifying by God's standard. And so the sum of man's character is very clear. God says that man is not righteous. He's totally sinful. He does not understand. He has no spiritual understanding. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. He does not seek God. He seeks his own. He's turned aside. He goes his own way. He is worthless. He is useless for God's divine purposes. And he does not do good because the best he does is not good according to God's standard. That is Almighty God's view of man's character. Because we are by nature sinners, our character is sinful. And that's something we need to understand and maybe you young people in here this morning need to understand, we're not sinners because we sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature. The sins we commit are just an expression of our sinful nature. We sin because we are sinners by nature. And that sinful nature manifests itself in our character. And another way our sinful nature manifests itself is in the things that we say. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 34 and 35, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 15, 28, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The mouth is the first indicator of what is in the heart. And the natural man's corrupt nature and character is revealed by his speech. And that's exactly where Paul moves to now in the indictment. Continuing to quote from the Old Testament, Paul adds four more indictments that all have to do with a person's speech. And this is how God regards the natural man's speech. He sees it as deceitful, poisonous, and full of cursing and bitterness. Look at count number seven, verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. In other words, the throat is to the heart, what an open grave is to the corpse that's lying in it. To leave the grave open would only expose everyone who came by to the filth and rot of decay to say nothing of the stench. And so what Paul is saying here is that man's soul is dead in trespasses and sin. And he continually testifies of his spiritual death by the foul, perverse, self-centered, self-seeking words that come up through his throat. And all you have to do is listen to to what people say to know whether man is depraved or unsaved. Listen to what they say. Count number eight. They use their tongues to deceive. The the, The tense of the word deceive indicates a continual, repetitive deception. For the natural man, Lying and other forms of deceit are a habitual, normal part of their life. People will say whatever is expedient to gain their desired end. They'll say whatever they need to say to get what they want to get or to avoid what they want to avoid. And that is a revelation of the sinful rottenness inside. Let me ask you something. Have you found that to be true in your relationships with unbelievers? Have you found that to be true in your business? I mean, it is true. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 3, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But then he follows those comforting words with with this declaration. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. And then he says, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Jeremiah also spoke of man's deceitfulness. Jeremiah 9, 3 to 5. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they, they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. And that's true. People don't tell the truth. When the natural man is full of sin, he reveals this Deadly corruption of, of his heart by, by use of the tongue for lies. You know, Jesus said in Matthew fifteen eighteen, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And the Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. You know, he was a liar from the beginning, and the natural man by his lies just shows that he is of his father, the devil. And I think it would behoove us as believers, you know, sitting here this morning thinking, boy, those unsaved people, man, they are really bad. Lie like the devil. Well, you know what? Unfortunately, so do many Christians. I've been lied to by a lot of Christians. They can look you in the eye and lie. Tell half-truths which are still whole lies. So why is it that someone who professes a Christian thinks that it's okay to just continue to lie? Count number nine. The venom of asps, it's a venomous snake. The venom of asps is under their lips. From the throat to the tongue and out of the underpart of the lips. One writer describing this venomous snake, the asp, said this. The fangs of such a deadly snake ordinarily lie folded back in the upper jaw. But when the snake throws his head to strike, these hollow fangs drop down. And when the snake bites, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison hidden under the lips, injecting venom into the victim. And Paul says, the venom, the poison of asps is under their lips. You know, the lips of of an unbeliever, are compared to the poison or to poison that can kill. And the picture here is a strong one. You know, and it emphasizes the fact that the natural man can inflict unbelievable pain and destruction and wounds upon people through the words that he speaks. You know, the old children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a flat-out lie. Words can destroy people. You know, words can can bring lasting uh, pain and, and misery. Count number 10. Paul continues to use the imagery of speaking, and he describes the ungodly this way. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Curses. The word means to speak a curse, to speak evil against someone, to to curse someone. And that is just so common in our society today, isn't it? It's so common. You know, cursing, filthy talk, cussing somebody out, I mean, it just goes on as a way of life. You know, men, women, doesn't matter. It's the way the ungodly speak. You know, women are just as bad as men. I remember being in law enforcement several decades ago, four decades ago, And, uh, you know, some of the worst people to stop uh, as far as expecting to get cussed out were women. Cursing. It's the way the ungodly speak. And in the word bitterness, it's the open public expression of emotional hostility against one's enemies. And the whole idea of, of cursing and bitterness is just foul, evil, angry, hostile language toward one another and just listen to the world. Just listen to the way the world speaks. It's foul, filthy talk, deceitful talk, words of bitterness, angry, hateful words. I mean, all of those things, the lies, the deceits, the destruction that comes out of the mouths of people are all indicators of the depravity of man. Like an open grave, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth reveal the stench of a spiritually dead and depraved heart. And now we come to the third and final round of indictments that have to do with man's conduct and and how it manifests the same sinfulness. So first it was his character, second was his speech, and now uh, it's his conduct. Count number 11, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that unsaved man is basically a murderous individual. I mean, We kill our own at a greater rate than any animal. We kill our own constantly. We are murderers, killers, whether you're talking about cannibalism on the hand in a, uh, on, on the one hand in a primitive society, or whether you're talking about mass genocide such as we have seen in the Western civilized world, Or whether you're talking about abortion, mass murders, shootings, wars, and anything and everything in between, it is clear that men massacre each other, their feet are swift to shed blood. It began with Cain who murdered his brother out of envy and jealousy. And the book of Genesis, in chapter 6, verse 13, tells us that when God destroyed the earth by the flood, one of the reasons for that judgment is that the earth was filled with violence. Do you think it's any different today? The earth was filled with violence. I mean, one mark of fallen man is that he is quick to engage in violence. And again, as Christians, we shouldn't sit here and think, well, you know, I'm not a murderer. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, we're glad for that but the fact of the matter is Jesus also looks at the heart. So have you ever hated anybody in your heart? Jesus said, you're a murderer. You're guilty of murder. Have you ever murdered anyone's reputation? With slander and gossip? That's a form of murder too, isn't it? That's the history of man. Man is a murderer. Contrary to what psychology would have us to believe and and, uh, the unbelieving world, man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil. He has an evil, unbelieving heart. He's sinful. And we see the, the mark of man's evil in his desire to shed blood. Now verse 16 takes it even a step further. And this is the 12th count, count number 12. He says, in their paths are ruin and misery. In other words, they leave a trail of devastation. The word misery is a word that can mean a number of things. It may mean distress, it may mean suffering, it may mean wretchedness. It's, it's a general term for the harm that that always results because of man's sinful, destructive acts against his fellow man. And it's obvious that the world is miserable. I mean, why else are, are, uh, you know, suicide numbers at at all times high and an all-time high? Drug addiction, alcoholism, abuse of every kind. Why? Because man is miserable. The world is miserable. I mean, there's unhappiness because man leaves a path of ruin, devastation, and, and misery in his world. That's the conduct of, of, of sinful man. That's, that's what marks all of human history. I mean, people sin without, they they just sin with abandon without any thought of the lasting consequences of their sin. I mean, no thought of the future and the absolute ruin, misery, and devastation that their acts will bring. But what else could be the consequence of a humanity accustomed to deceit, to bitterness and violence, and to shedding blood? As one man said, we have been able to conquer all kinds of obstacles to the lifespan of mankind, diseases, safety factors, and so on. But it is as true today as it was in the first century that ruin and misery are in the path of humanity. Then the 13th count in the indictment, verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. The way of peace they have not known. Now if there's one thing the world never has, it's peace. There's never peace in the world because there is no peace for the wicked. as in jeremiah 's day, the people were, were crying, "Peace, peace" when there was no peace. In the world, there was only conflict, strife, violence, devastation and destruction. Quarrels, hatred, fights, arguments, animosities, crimes, revolutions, and wars. The world is not a peaceful place, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, someone has said that the closest thing to peace that the world experiences is that moment in time when everybody stops to reload. And it's not simply that man has not followed the way of peace. The way of peace they have not known. In other words, they've never really understood it. The way of peace they they don't understand. And of course, Scripture makes clear that peace will never dominate human society and the world until the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns to establish His kingdom upon the earth. And now the 14th and final count in God's indictment. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul in describing fallen mankind says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The psalmist said in Psalm 36, 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's man's problem. The reason man is so abandoned to sin is that he doesn't fear God. He has no fear of God. And with regard to fearing God, there are both positive and and negative elements. In a positive way, every every true believer has a reverential fear of God and and just an awesome awareness of, of his power, his holiness, His majesty, His glory. And the proper worship of God always includes that that kind of fear of the Lord, this reverential fear and awe of the Lord. And and that that fear is the beginning of spiritual wisdom. And there's a negative aspect of the fear of God. And that has to do more with, with dread and a fear because I know that If I violate God's law, if I persistently live in sin, then I'm inviting God's chastening, in other words, His discipline. And, of course, there are consequences for that. Well, how severe are are the consequences of God's discipline? Well, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.30, we, we see the types of discipline the Lord may use for His sinning children. I mean, Paul there in 1 Corinthians 11.30 said that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So if you're a child of God and you want to persistently live in sin, you're inviting God's discipline and and it can be severe. Of course, that's all God's department but he could send weakness in your life, he could send illness in your life, and he can actually take you home early. That's what some, uh, that's what that means. Some have died. God took them home early. And so as believers, we should all have a measure of that that kind of fear because it acts as a deterrent to sin. It is a protection uh, from sinning. It's just kind of like growing up in your home and And you knew that if you went out and did certain things and you kept doing those certain things, then you were inviting your Father's loving discipline. It's the same way it is with our Heavenly Father. But in in this context, uh, Paul is speaking about the unsaved. And the fear that he has in mind here is the fear of God in, in its most intense and terrifying sense. You know, it's th- th- this, 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 this is the, the fear, you know, fearing the one who can damn their souls to hell. You know, Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him. In other words, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul says the world, you know, the the unsaved world has no fear of God. And that's certainly true. I mean, unless God's Spirit has worked in the heart, men do not fear God. They are irreverent. They are blasphemous. They have no respect for God's holiness, for His person, for His work. They have no respect for His will and no respect for His power. They don't fear Him at all. They don't fear His wrath. Instead, they mock Him and, and they curse Him. I mean, you may have asked yourself at one time or another, you know, how in the world can people do what they do? I mean, how can they be so abandoned to the lust and the filth and and the perversion of the world? How can that be? Well, I guess in one sense it's surprising, but in another sense it shouldn't be surprising at all. Because first of all, they're sinners by nature and by practice. They're spiritually dead and under the power of sin and Satan. And they're just doing what sinners do, living for themselves. And the flesh is never satisfied, and so it just gets more perverse and more evil and more wicked. So first of all, they're sinners by nature and practice, spiritually dead, under the power of sin and Satan. But secondly, they have no fear of Uh, they have no fear of God. I mean, that's how it is with the world. They don't fear Him because they don't believe they're accountable to Him. I mean, why do you think they came up with the theory of evolution? I mean, Darwin's own admission is, uh, you know, so he wouldn't have to accept God because he knew that if he did, he would be accountable to Him. They don't fear God, and they don't, want to, they don't believe they're accountable to Him. They, they don't answer to Him. But little do they know. Little do they know. If they die in their sin, they will be held accountable for every single sin that they have ever committed. They will stand before the Holy God of Heaven as their righteous judge. And and all they did in secret is going to be brought into the light. For as the writer of Hebrews said, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So they may not fear God now, but one day they will tremble before the judge of all the earth with nothing, the writer of Hebrews said, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. And as the writer of Hebrews said a few verses later, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what is God's estimate of man's conduct? Well, verses 15 to 18 show that God sees man as murderous, destructive, without peace, and fear of Almighty God. And again, of course, every person in the world is not the same in the sense that all people do not sin to the same extent. But all are under sin. All are under the dominion of of Satan and sin. And this is the fruit that, that the human tree produces. An evil tree brings forth evil fruit. And so that is Paul's, rather that is God's. 14-count indictment against fallen mankind. And now in verses 19 and 20, we come to the verdict. And it's very clear. Paul begins in verse 19, Now we know. The word translated here is know, means to know absolutely, to be sure, to be positive. In other words, there is not any doubt, there is no confusion whatsoever. Paul says we know, in other words, we absolutely know this, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Well, who are those who are under the law? Every human being is under the law of God. The Jew is under obligation to God's written word. The Gentile is under obligation to the law of God that has been written on his heart and conscience. And so all are under the law. So that, the rest of verse 19, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. But what does that mean? It means there's no defense. It means there is nothing to say. There is not a word to say to defend yourself. The only response is dead silence. Paul says every mouth is stopped. There's no defense whatsoever. There is absolutely nothing to say because all men are guilty of all counts. And there is absolutely no chance for an appeal or an acquittal. The imagery here is that of a defendant in court who now given the opportunity to speak on his own behalf, is absolutely and utterly speechless. He's speechless because of the overwhelming evidence brought against him. And so the defendant closes his mouth with nothing to say in defense after the prosecuting attorney is finished because he recognizes that he is at the mercy of the judge. He is at the mercy of Almighty God who is now about to pronounce the sentence. Every mouth is stopped. No mouth anywhere in the world from the primitive tribe to the university lecture hall will be able to raise a legitimate objection against God's judgment. Every mouth is stopped. And the mouths that do raise objections against God now will one day be totally silenced. I mean, every human being is guilty before God. This is the great lesson of the first three chapters of Romans. Now you know why so many people don't teach the book of Romans. The final verdict is that the whole world, every unredeemed human being, stands guilty before God. I'm guilty. You're guilty. Everybody in your family is guilty. Everybody at your school and workplace is guilty. The clerk at the store is guilty. The, the bus driver is guilty. Your next door neighbor is guilty. Everybody in the whole world stands guilty before the holy God of heaven. And this should sober us about ourselves and everyone else that we meet. Because it means that everyone, every single unsaved person is guilty. Guilty. And of course some will say, well now, wait a minute. Some of those people living under God's law, you know, just might have lived up to the law. You know, they, they, they might have kept all the rules. You know, some of them might have been righteous. And the Lord knew that someone would say something just like that. You know, things like, well, you know, there's this one guy. There's this one guy, no, I mean, he, he was righteous. He, he kept the law. He, he, he obeyed the rules. Or, you know, well, well you know, there, there's this group of folks, and I know, I, I know they've kept the law. I know they obeyed. I mean, they're, they're righteous. Man, if anybody's righteous, they're righteous. That's what people thought of the scribes and Pharisees. And because the Lord knew that somebody was going to say something just like that, the Holy Spirit had the Apostle Paul add verse 20. Look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All people are guilty before the bar of God's justice. And nothing done in obedience to the law can make a man right with God. Absolutely nothing. If somehow, by some miracle, you were able from this moment on to live a a perfect sinless life, you know, do everything. Keep the law in, you know every jot and tittle. If you could just live a perfect life from this point on, you would still never be acceptable to God because being good would never atone for one single sin in the past. No amount of good works done in obedience to God's law can ever in all eternity put a man or a woman in a right relationship with God. No one can be made right with God by what they do. Works are an absolute dead end. Not one person, not one single person except the Lord Jesus Christ can lay out the list of all the things required by God's law, which they have done perfectly and therefore should be declared righteous by God. Oh, there are people that imagine they can. But the Bible says we are are all in reality guilty as sin. No one is going to make it by keeping the law of God. No one can be made righteous by obedience to the law of God. Every person on the face of the earth is obligated to keep God's law, but nobody on the face of the earth can actually do that. No one can keep the law of God perfectly. And that's the divine standard. Even as believers, that's the standard for us. God's standard isn't lowered under grace. As believers, we sin every day. That's why His mercies are new every morning. No one can keep the law of God perfectly, and that's that's the divine standard. Absolute, sinless perfection in word, thought, Deed and motive one hundred percent of the time from the very moment of death to the very, from the very moment of birth to the very moment of death. That's an impossible standard. Impossible. And that put man that puts man in an impossible situation. Because he has fallen, he's a sinner by nature and practice, but he's obligated to keep God's law perfectly, but he can't. He can't. And he's unable to do so because he's spiritually dead under the power and dominion of sin and Satan. He is dead in his trespasses and sin, utterly helpless to change his lost condition, absolutely unable to do anything to make himself right with God. He stands guilty and condemned before a holy God with nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and eternal wrath. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, this is you. You're dead in your trespasses and sin, and you're utterly helpless to change your lost condition. You are absolutely unable to do anything to make yourself right with God. You can't be good enough. And being good isn't what it's all about. I mean, if you're a young person who was born into a Christian home and you have have lived in in this Christian home and learned to talk the talk and, 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 and to be good, and believe what your parents believe because that's what they told you to believe, and you think that by believing what your parents believe just because they told you, and then by being good, meaning you don't fornicate or, uh, you know, run around or drink or cuss or this or that, that doesn't make you a Christian. That simply makes you a moralist. A moralist. And a moralist will never get into heaven. Men are dead in trespasses and sin, helpless to change their condition, unable to do anything to make themselves right with God. They stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. That is the human dilemma. This is man's great problem. This is why men need to be saved. However, based on what God's law requires, salvation for people like us, you know, like the unsaved, if you're unsaved, salvation for the unsaved like we were, that, that would be impossible. Based on God's what God's law requires. Because no unsaved person is righteous, even if they think they are. They don't do the good that God requires. They fall far far short of the perfect standard. So, how then can sinful beings ever be saved? How can sinful man ever be saved, ever be made righteous in the sight of God? How can a man be right with God? How does God save sinners? Because God cannot and will not overlook man's sin. He can't. God cannot and will not Overlook your sin or my sin, and we have all sinned, all are under sin, and the wages, the punishment of sin is death, meaning eternal separation from God in a place completely devoid of His love and mercy and grace, a place of eternal wrath where Jesus said there will be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so all sin must and will be punished. But if God punishes us for our sin, then we're going to be condemned to eternal punishment in hell. But all sin must be punished, so somebody's got to die for all that sin, right? The wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to die for all that sin. So how in the world is God going to work this out? Well, our only hope is that the perfect righteousness that God demands from us will be freely given to us. And it is. God's own righteousness is offered to man in the gospel to be received by faith. Verse 21 says the solution to this problem is apart from the law. And where is it? In verse 22, it's through faith in Christ. Look at verses 21 to 25. I'm just going to read through those. But now, oh, thank God for those words. Because at the end of verse 20, all the men stand condemned, silent, nothing to say. They're condemned before a holy God on their way to an eternal hell. That's man's predicament. But Paul says, but now, or in contrast to that, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified. How? By works? No, they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. In other words, as a satisfaction or uh, an appeasement of God's wrath. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Oh, thank God that these verses are here. I mean, the Scripture concludes that all are under sin, so in our hopelessness, we will turn to Christ and repent and believe in Him because Christ alone can give to us the righteousness of God which we must have if we're ever going to be right with Him. But God can only give us His perfect righteousness when all our sins have been dealt with. And that requires someone dying for sin. And again, the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. And someone did, didn't they? Someone died. That's the good news of the gospel. God sent His perfect, holy, sinless Son into the world. And he humbled himself to a degree that we cannot begin to comprehend. And he, and he came to earth, he became a man, and he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And, and he, was, he lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. And then he died on the cross as a ransom for many. And on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though in fact he committed none of them. And God poured out His furious wrath and punishment on Jesus for those sins. And in the words of Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood. God punished Jesus on the cross as if He had lived your sinful life and my sinful life so that He could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect, sinless life. Isn't that amazing? Christ died for our sins. He died, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, hell, death, and the grave. After 40 days, He ascended to heaven where He is today, ever making intercession for all who belong to Him. I mean, all our sin was punished on Jesus so that when we, by grace, through faith, put our trust in Him alone for salvation, God puts our sin on Jesus' account, marks it paid in full, but that's not all. He marks our sin paid in full, declares us justified, you know, sin's forgiven. But in addition to that, the other side of that equation is that God's perfect sinless life Christ's perfect sinless life. His perfect righteousness is then imputed to us. It's an accounting term. God takes Christ's perfect righteousness and He credits it over here to our account so that He sees us now as perfectly righteous in Christ. That's our position in Christ. We are perfectly righteous. Isaiah speaks of it as being clothed in His righteousness. Loved ones, that is incredibly good news. I mean, that is what God, through Jesus Christ, has done for sinful man. I mean, think of it. The relationship between the Holy God and unregenerate sinners can be restored because God, because of His great love and because of His mercy and grace, provided a remedy for sin. The very redeeming sacrifice of His only beloved Son. So all who come to Him through faith, as Paul said in verse 24 of Romans 3, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ gave His life He loved us and gave Himself for us. He paid the price. He redeemed us so that there could be release and deliverance. He paid the price to set us free from the power of of sin and the penalty of sin. He saved us from the wrath to come. Our justification, therefore our salvation was extremely, extremely costly to God. I mean it cost him the suffering and death of his only begotten son on the cross so that for the believer there's nothing left to pay salvation is to us a free gift of God's grace only because of Christ only because Christ has paid the price that is what God has done through his son the lord jesus christ that is what god has accomplished for us what christ accomplished for us upon the cross And the only saving response to the good news about what God has done for man is what the Bible says. And what does the Bible say? Repent and believe. Repent means to turn around. It's a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So you're heading your own way, the wrong way, the way that leads to death. And so God is calling you to turn around, turn around, run to Christ. Believe in Him. In other words, believe, trust in, cling to. And so our response to what we've heard last week and this morning should be, uh, again, to make absolutely certain that we ourselves have in fact accepted what God has said about our human condition as true. And that we have turned to the only hope there is, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins because, listen, we have no merit of our own to plead and no excuse to make. You know, if you were to get to the gates of heaven, you were asked, why should I let you in? And you begin by, because I did. You're done. You're not there because of anything you did, but because all of what Christ has done. So the response to that should be, my, own, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's only when we stand before God humbled, broken, speechless, and condemned that we will ever be ready to hear the words of verse 21 as Paul explains how God intervened through Christ and his cross for our salvation. So in your gospel presentation, don't start off with the benefits of salvation. Don't start off with the good news. They'll never appreciate it. They won't even understand it. It has to begin with God. He's the offended party. It begins with God who is holy and righteous and just. He is our holy creator and our righteous judge and we have sinned, we have offended him, we have committed high treason against the king of heaven and are deserving of nothing but eternal death. That's the bad news. That's where the gospel has to start. And then when people understand how bad it is, how bad their predicament really is, when they understand that, uh, like any of you here this morning who are an unbeliever, when you, in, that, in that moment when you come to understand you're standing on the very precipice of hell, and you're only one heartbeat away from eternity, and your only hope is Jesus Christ. I mean, it's then, when we are humbled, broken, speechless, and condemned, that you're going to be ready to hear the good news of the gospel. So that you'll appreciate it. And so I want to challenge you again this morning uh, with a very simple question. You know, do I know Jesus Christ personally? You know, we should all be asking ourselves that question Do I know Jesus Christ personally? Or is what I believe second-hand information? I just believe what somebody else told me to believe. I just believe what my parents told me to believe or I believe what this preacher told me to believe. Do you know Jesus Christ personally because you have come to know that you were lost and on your way to eternal hell and your only hope was Christ alone? You know? Do you know that you've trusted in Him alone for salvation? If not, oh, I urge you to turn to God and to believe in, trust in, rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with God. That is your only hope this morning. And Christ is offering to you the gift of salvation and He is more willing to save than you are willing to be saved. That's how heinous and wicked man's pride is. You see, the message of the cross and faith in Christ and repentance and that you can't do this on your own offends man's pride. But if you will humble yourself, turn around and run to Christ and acknowledge your sin, plead with Him to save you, He will surely save. For everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is such glorious good news. So if you're not a believer this morning, oh, I encourage you, put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Don't don't wait. Don't wait another moment. If you're a young person, you're not a believer, and you're sitting here this morning and you know it, don't think that you have Uh, until you're 80 years old to come to faith in Christ. You may not live past tomorrow. I mean, I've done funerals for uh, young people. Did a funeral for an 18-year-old. Had all of his life ahead of him. But he died. Death is no respecter of age or persons. You think, well, Pastor, you're just trying to scare me. Well, my purpose and intent is not to scare you. My purpose and intent is to simply simply share with you the truth. But I tell you this, there are absolutely some things you should absolutely be terrified of. And one of them is dying in your sin. Because God will surely dispatch you to an eternal hell. That is man's default destination, not heaven. R.C. Sproul said so many people in America believe that uh, justification is by death. In other words, all you have to do to get to heaven is die. That's not true. Man's default destination is hell. And only those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation will be saved. So again, if you're not a believer, come to faith in Christ. Come to faith in Christ. And after the service, if you have questions about what that is, or you've trusted Christ, right, where you're seated this morning, or uh, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and you're you're fearful, uh, you have questions, well, right through this door, first door on the left, is a prayer room, and a couple of our elders and their wives will be in there, and they'd love to speak with you, uh, answer questions you might have, pray with you, pray for you, uh, give you information. So don't leave today if you have questions about your eternal soul. If you're unsure about your eternal state, please, please, don't leave. Don't leave without settling that issue. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. I